Hello everyone and welcome to episode 319 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm CEO and co-host of this podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of the Mapmaker Chronicles and Adaban Cipher series. How are you, Al? I'm I'm okay. I'm good. Yep. I'm <laughs> I'm fair to middling. Fair to middling people. You know how we like to talk about how important it is to be fair to middling. Well, that's where I'm at. I've got my copy edit finished. Yay. Yay. Big, big cheers. I've managed to get through the ordeal of getting my new author headshots done. Yay. Oh, yeah, right. Because I hate, you know, I have to say that is my least favourite aspect of mm. being an author in some ways. It's That's mm. the worst bit. I, that's why, I that is why up until, you know, I just had these new ones done. My author headshot was about five years old was because I just have not been able to psych myself up to mm. getting a new one. But I was starting to worry that I was going to be like Barbara Cartland. You know, she was about 90, but her author headshot was about, she was about 40 in that. So I was starting to worry that I was going to be that. I was going to be this person and I would turn up to events <laughs> and kids would not recognize me because <laughs> they'd be like, what? So, yeah, but I, I think, you know, they, they do, and kids will tell you. They'll look at, oh, did we talk about this? Have I had this conversation with you where they'll no. look at the, I had the literary lunch. Did I tell you about no. this? I can't, I can never remember what we talked about and what we didn't. Okay. So I went to a literary lunch. I'm sitting at the table. There's 10 kids there. They're all library monitors, you know, so they're Aww. fairly chatty types. And um, this kid looks at the photo of me that's on the table and looks at me and goes, is that really you? Ah! <laughs> God. At which point I thought, yeah, it's probably time for a new one. Oh, yeah, wow. Suck that up. Yeah, so they're pretty honest. They will tell you. I'm not and sure. And where, where did you take your for, uh, author shots? Oh, well, I, I, I went to a very lovely uh, local photographer called John Harris, uh, John Hello, Harris John. Photography. Um, if you're on the South Coast, awesome job, very, very nice man, made me feel quite relaxed. Um, mm. So he's based in Jeringong, which is, mm. um, you know, you know, around here. And um, we, wow, it's really cool actually. So when I actually get around to posting my new shots on my website, you'll see, um, we went to the Jeringong train station has this awesome like disused building next to it. I think it used to be the platform and the Mm -hmm. train used to go through there, but it's now, it's like this old building. Um, So we, we went there. And um, oh. did the shots, you know, around that area. So they're really cool. There is a shot in which I look probably more like I'm about to burst into Jolene or some other <laughs> country music song than an author. But it's actually a really nice shot. So I'm, I'm probably like going to use Are you like chewing that. on a piece of wheat or something? No, but I've got my like boots on and my jeans and I'm sitting on the edge of this disused rail, you know, it's like this disused yeah. rail station siding. Mm-hmm. And it really like it's an album cover for a song called Heartbreak and loneliness like it's that I, love it. I know oh um but it was fun it was a good uh good a good experience so you know so you uh, can like, eat cheese now I can eat cheese yeah if I if I remember to buy it because as we have discussed oh, I've been a little yes. bit you know yes yeah, so I better in remember the meantime, to buy the cheese my photos have been postponed so I'm now in a quandary do I st- still do my don't eat cheese until they're rescheduled or you know just go for it until I get a date 
<laughs> For those people who are new to this podcast. I would podcast, just keep eating the cheese. I actually yes. didn't give up the cheese even at all because at the end of the day, like imagine if I didn't eat cheese for two weeks and I ended up with these amazing cheekbone photos and then I turn up at the oh, yeah. literary lunch with the library monitors and they go, is that really you? Like, <laughs> yes. So I, I have to be, you know, as I said to, to John uh, when he was taking the photos, it's I have, you know, i got to look like I'm going to look when I turn up. And so mm. you will recognise a couple of the authorial blazers in their natural habitat, yeah, because I've actually donned the full author and done the blazers as well. So when I turn up in the blazer, they'll recognise the blazer even if they don't recognise me. Oh, okay. Good idea. Mm-hmm. Good idea. See? It's like a yeah. signpost. All right. It's like a cunning plan. Well done. All right, let's move on to uh, the world of writing and publishing this week. Just a big shout out, or big public service announcement actually, not a shout out, uh, for people who want to check out Burr Bay Books. What's happening at Burr Bay Books, Al? Oh, good question. Burr Bay Books. I'm so glad you asked me that question, Valerie, because I have no idea. No, uh, Burbay Books has put a call out for some um, submissions, which is always exciting news for our author community. So children's, for the first time, Burbay Books at burbaybooks.com is uh, until the 30th of April, so you still have a little bit of time to get yourself all polished up. They are accepting chapter books and junior fiction submissions. So for readers between the ages of 6 to 12, um, so it's the first time they've accepted them. So, you know, the field is wide open, people, and it's Mm. open for um, unpublished authors as well as, you know, authors who already have a few books out there. Um, they would like to see, and this is from the publisher's website, Burbay Publishing, we'd like to see contemporary narratives with or without a touch of whimsy, you know, I like mm. a bit of whimsy, mm. and stories that inspire the imagination. They would like you to submit a cover letter and the first 50 pages of your novel, um, and the email address is submissions at burbaybooks.com. Uh, we'll put the link in the show notes to yeah. all this. Um, and you'll receive uh, an automatic email confirming receipt of your projects. And if they are interested in seeing more of your work, they will contact you directly. They ask that authors submit only one project during the open submission window. So make sure it's your best Pick one. Pick your best. Pick your mm. best one. Make sure it's polished. You have until the 30th of April. Don't go too early. Make sure you've mm. redrafted. Um, they are not accepting picture books, short stories, poetry, or young adult fiction. So this is very specifically chapter books and junior fiction submissions. Yes, and because you've got until the 30th of April, if you want to polish your chapter books, make sure you check out the course Writing Chapter Books for 6- to 9-year-olds because that's a fantastic course that takes you through all of the expectations that publishers have from chapter books and the kind of stuff that you should put in a chapter book. So check that out at writercenter.com.au slash chapterbooks. Now, the other link we have is from Anne R. Ellen's blog, right? 10 new publishing scams to watch out for in 2020. Because you and I both often get emails or messages or whatever from people saying, oh, you know, I've been through this situation with a publisher and now I'm in dire straits because this has happened or I've Mm -hmm. paid all this money or they haven't met my expectations, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, And 
it's distressing to hear that, but it's often a bit confounding because before you do business with somebody, my suggestion is that you Google them. Mm. And often when you do a simple Google of certain, you know, uh, for want of a better word, not so reputable publishers, yeah, you know, yeah. all this information comes up about the f- yeah. why people think they're not so reputable. So yeah. make sure you do do that. But there's also this um, post on Anne R. Allen's blog, isn't there? Uh, yeah, there is. So Anne R. Allen is. Um, we have shared um, Anne's work in the past. It's a it's a reputable site. It has a she has a very yeah. deep well of information. Um, you know, if you're looking, if you're kind of new in the publishing space, these kind of blogs, her blog. Um, Jane Friedman's blog. There's a f- several blogs out there that are just, and uh, of course Joanna Penn, are fantastic. Just get in there and have a really good look at what they've got because they it, there's so much information to be had there. Yeah. Anyway, the post that she has uh, is ten new publishing scams to watch out for in 2020, and you know she points out some that are like people. You know, there's some very obvious publishing scams, and there are some very obvious names that come up regularly in the if you, as you say, when you do that that search. They are mm. sometimes well hidden because what those particular publishers do is they game the search engines mm. to make sure that the whole front page of, of Google is full of glowing, you know, stuff or ads about them. Um, and it's not actually till you get to page two or page three. Like go five pages into Google. Make sure that you go, are getting yeah. in because where you want to be is the chat forums. Where you want to get yes. to is Writer Beware, which is a fantastic website mm. run by Victoria Strauss. So Writer Beware is another great place to look for this kind of stuff. Um, so what, you know, one of the things that Anne says, you know, is that that what they'll do, uh, some of these scammy publishers, is that they will ride the coattails of publishing influencers. So Anne R. Allen is a publishing influencer. If you Google um, Anne R. Allen, about halfway down the search engine results page, before you get to a link to her blog, is an ad for a notorious vanity publisher. And I'm not going to say uh, well, you know who they are or whatever, but yeah, they yeah. what they do is they use her name as a keyword yeah. search for their ads. Okay. So you have to make sure that you're not just looking at the first three things that come up in Google. You've got to actually get right the way through and see what else is out there. Um, and then this is a new one: uh, vanity publishers posing as big five publishers. Mm, so you know lovely. they'll pose; they'll actually send you emails, um, you know, masquerading as somebody else. Um, mm. So Ashet has actually put an alert on its Facebook page saying, "You know, scam alert! We've recently become aware that some people are receiving fraudulent messages from mm. a scam artist posing as Ashet." HR using a fake email address, um, you know, sending out fake employment letters. Like, what? Like, really? Um, yeah. So there's, there's, uh, you know, there's quite a few different ways that people go about trying to get money because you know everybody knows that authors there's an awful lot of work in writing a book, and there's a lot of you know dreams tied up in getting that thing published. Um, and what you want to do is make sure that nobody is exploiting that dream. So you have to do your research. Um, I think it's really important. Um, And there's this one here, um, magazines that charge for interviews. Now, I saw this recently and a a very um, well-known author that I know that I'm friends with uh, posted, you know, that he had received, he'd received an an email from a podcast 
not mm. us, obviously, um, you know, saying that, you know, we'd really like to interview you. And he wrote back saying, great, you know, whatever, when do you yeah. want to do it? And yeah. they came back to him and said, well, our packages, our packages start yeah. at $3,000. I got one Three. of those emails this morning. Valerie. It's unbelievable. I mean, seriously, three yeah. grand, does that work? No. No, the one I, I got was $6,000. Really? Ridiculous, ridiculous. But obviously wow. some people fall for it. Well, obviously. Um, mm. But, you know, it's it's like, like obviously, you know, being asked to be interviewed on a big podcast is going to be a flattering thing, but you want to make sure, A, it is a big podcast, mm. that it's actually, you know, worth your time, let alone your money, and don't mm. pay for interviews unless there's, you know, really, really solid reason to do so. Mm. I can't think of what one would be. Like so. it would be broadcast during the Super Bowl. But even well, then, yeah. it's probably not your market. No, that's right. I mean, I mean, it was like we were talking about last week with the guest blogs, you know, like mm. make sure that whatever it is that you're putting your time, effort and money into is actually going to go to an audience that is going to care because yes, there's an awful lot of stuff out there. But anyway, so there's a whole range of different publishing yep. scams. Um, Anne has done a very good overview of them in this particular um, in this particular post. And, you know, it's, it's like anything, it's, it's about being aware and it's about being yes. on top of it. And it's about researching so that you're aware of what the new ones are, let alone what the old ones were. So, yep. yeah. Absolutely. Mm. All right. And that link will be in the show notes, which you can find at so you want to be a writer.com.au. Now our competition this week, we have three copies and you can win one of them. We have three copies of Mrs. Groff's Mischievous Book of Mother Management by Maggie Groff. That's a lot of alliteration. Um, you can fool all of the children some of the time and some of the children all of the time, but with practice you can fool all of the children all of the time and their fathers. Warm, funny and wise and based on her best-selling Mothers Behaving Badly, this little gift book is packed with gems of old plus a treasure trove of new and fascinating information about the female parent plus a multitude of facts, cheats, ideas and curiosities that will surprise and delight mothers everywhere. So that's Mrs. Groff's Mischievous Book of mother ma Motherhood Management and uh, go to writerscena.com.au slash win and follow the instructions in order to win. Entries close on the 2nd of March. So that's writerscenter.com.au slash win. Now, Al, are you ready for the word of the week? I am always ready for the word of the week. Yay! Can we just say that right now and get it out there? <laughs> <laughs> You're about to say get it over with. Get it over. Well, that too. <laughs> uh -huh. All right. Tigon. T-I-G-O-N. Tigon. Do you know what that is? Um, no. I don't think okay. so. It is the offspring of a male tiger and a female lion, whereas a liger is offspring of a male lion and a female tiger. Huh. Wow. <laughs> I, I am astonished and astounded. What can I say? Really? This okay. is what happens when Al is fair to middling. <laughs> this is her reaction to my word of the week. Uh, do you know, like, wow, really? Okay. I mean, you know, I, I, I guess I'm just trying to get my head around what that might look like in either permutation. But anyway, oh, that's amazing, God. Valerie. You're astounding. 
All right, so um, let's move on to my writer in residence this week. This week we are talking to Leon Hearn. Now, Leon Hearn is a pseudonym for Gillian Rubenstein, who has written many books for children as well as plays. But then after she spent many years writing for children and as a playwright, she decided to indulge in her interest and passion in Japan. And she ended up writing a whole series of books set in um, in that world. And her latest is um, Children of the Atori, Orphan Warriors, followed by Sibling Assassins. They are part of this world, but these two books are standalone as well. And Leon has been translated into 42 languages, is a multi-million bestseller, and we have a chat to her about her very long and storied career. Thanks for joining us today, Leon. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Now your latest books are out. For those people who have not yet grabbed a copy, tell us what they're about. They're the two final books in my series, The Tales of the Otori. So the first one is called Orphan Warriors and the second one, Sibling Assassins. Um, So they kind of follow on the story in the series, but they're also standalone novels about a relatively new character who's a minor character in one of the earlier books. And so they are standalone books. Can you just, if we focus on these ones, can you tell us the premise? I was very interested in the events in Japanese history where you have um, families ordered to commit suicide. This often happens, you know, warlords who had who had been defeated or sons who had annoyed their father for some reason uh, or... Um, vassals who were thought to have been traitors. And so they were ordered to take their own lives and often the lives of their families too. And, you know, this seems to us to be a very cruel and harsh thing. And you hardly ever hear about the effect on the children. So sometimes the children died with their parents or there are sometimes instances of where a loyal retainer will substitute his own child for the child of his lord, and so that child survives. And so my two orphan warriors are both in this situation. One of them has had his parents ordered to to commit suicide, and the other one has um, been the sole survivor of a family who were ordered to kill themselves because one of his father's retainers did substitute his own son for him. So they have to live with with these awful events having happened in their young lives. And so it's Children of the Atori, and the first book is Orphan Warriors. The second is Sibling Assassins. Now, you have um, set nine of your books in a mythical country based on medieval Japan. So presumably you are really into Japan. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell us how that started and why you're so fascinated by it? It actually started when I was quite young. I've always been very interested in Japan. I'm never really quite sure why. Perhaps it had something to do with the fact that when I was a child growing up, Japan was the enemy. And I've always been interested in what 
makes countries enemies with each other. And I've always had that sympathy for the person who's perceived as an enemy or as an underdog or something like that. Um, and when I came to Australia, suddenly Japan seemed very much closer. I mean, it's only only nine hours away on a plane and it's in the same time zone. And there are a lot of connections in between Japan and Australia now. So I went to Japan for the first time in 1993 on a school trip with my 14-year-old daughter. And I just fell in love with it. As soon as I was there, I felt that I had been there before. It was the most strange feeling, but it all seemed, although it was all very unusual and very unfamiliar, it also seemed familiar in a very strange way. Mm. I think that's potentially a book in itself. Now, so based on medieval Japan, what kind of research have you done on medieval Japan uh, and what extent of that research has has been incorporated in your books? Well, I suppose I've done everything that I could possibly do. I've spent long periods in Japan. Um, I've been in the countryside where the books are set. I um, go to old towns and look at old houses and walk in places where, you know, castles once stood and understand why they were built there and that sort of thing and check out the birds and the animals and the plants and the trees and all of that. I've been very lucky that I have been able to do that quite a lot. And then um, I watched a lot of Japanese movies. I read a lot of Japanese literature, both in translation and now in Japanese as well. Go to art galleries and museums, you know, look at a lot of artworks um, read poetry, talk to Japanese people, all of those things, yeah. And all it's, of that goes into the book. Sorry, I'll answer the second half no, of yeah, your do, question. Do. Um, all of that goes into the books, but I kind of have it all there and then I try to forget it as much as possible so that I'm writing naturally about mm. people who actually live in this world, you know, that they're not surprised by things in the world like, I might have been surprised while I was writing. I go, wow, I didn't know that. Mm. But my characters do know that, so I have to make it all seem very natural. So you've chosen to write about this world, as you have referred to it. How did you create this world? What did you start with or what kind of world did you want to create in order to, to tell your stories? wanted to – well, my first um, – prompt, I suppose, was I wanted to see if I could write a high fantasy set in a world that was not Anglo-Celtic. And that was when I began to wonder if I could set it in a world based on medieval Japan. Um, and um, when I started, when I first went to Japan, I had the voice of my main character very strongly in my head, and I knew his story very clearly. Um, and the other characters then came in. But I don't ever really start with a sensible plan. I just sit down and I start to write. I may have some key scenes and some conversations and some sentences in my head and an overall feel of the book. Like I usually know what colour the book represents in my mind. And I sit down and I start writing. I write by hand in 
240-page spiral-bound notebooks with gel pens. And Wow. I you write, write by hand. I do. And I don't write an awful lot at a time. If I write a thousand words a day, which is about three pages, I feel very pleased with, with myself and I feel that's enough. But on my first draft, I don't stop. I just let everything in. And I write um, early in the morning, almost as if I'm in a trance. And I just sit down and let the story unfold. And I find that that's the most absorbing and enthralling part of writing because I really don't know what's going to happen. And my characters often surprise me. And the plot surprises me as, as well. It goes in directions that I hadn't thought it was going to go in. So do I take from that that you don't plot or do you have some semblance of a plot and you just let it go, you know, down a path? How, how does that work for you? Yeah, I don't plot at all to start with. Oh I just let the characters drive the story. Um, sometimes I have an idea of where the book's going to end and I know what I'm working towards. Um, but after my first draft, I then go th through that very carefully and then I make a very careful outline of what's actually happening in the story and um, I put that onto a time chart so that we know the time of day and you know, the day of the month and the phase of the moon and what's happening in the seasons and all of those things. And when I type it up, I'm a very stern editor of my own work. So I get rid of a lot of things that I don't think are necessary. And I can see where things need to be, um, you know, enhanced a little bit, widened out a bit. Um, and where characters have gone a bit off the track and they have to be reined back. So it's not that I don't write without form, but I don't like to do it at first. It comes afterwards. And so I'm still back on that you write it out by hand on the 240-page spiral-bound notebooks, <laughs> although I do like the gel pens. Mm. Uh, but if you do that and you get your first draft out that way, at what point does it make it onto the computer? <laughs> Well, then I have to type it up. <laughs> oh, my God. So that's when I type it in, yeah. But that's good because that works as a second draft. Yeah, sure. Okay, so um, when did you know you wanted to be a writer? Oh, probably very early on as a, as a young child. I was always making up poems when I was little and writing little stories about my toys and our pets and so on. Mm. And so everybody used to say, oh, well, Jill's going to be a writer when she grows up. But I didn't think I could be because it always seemed to me that you need to have lived some sort of life to be able to be a writer. I didn't know what I was going to write about. Um, and I think what really inspired me was the books that I read as a child, which I fell so totally in love with. Mm. I have always had a dream to be able to write books like that, you know, that readers will love. And I think... Many writers say that, that it's that thrill of kind of carrying on the torch, you know, and then passing it on to other people. Mm. That is one of the great things about being a writer. So you made reference to that people would say, you know, Jill's going to be a writer because, of course, you uh, your, your first novel back in 1986 was under the name of Julian Rubenstein. That's so right. Tell mm. us. Uh, so it's Space Demons. Tell us why Leon Hearn. Well, I wrote under the name of Julian Rubenstein for quite a long time, maybe 15 years, um, and wrote many books 
for children of all ages, you know, picture book texts mm. up to fairly complex teenage novels and also 10 plays. Um, and when I got to the end of my teenage novels, I decided, and I had the idea and I'd written the first book in the trilogy mm. across the Nightingale floor. And I said to my agent, you know, I would really love to bring this out under a pen name. And she said, actually, I think that's a very good idea. So it made a clear distinction between mm. one sort of writing, which was mainly for children and adolescents, and this new writing, which was more for adults. Mm. And so you said, you just referred to when I came to the end of writing, you know, for teenagers, was that a a natural end, as in did you make a conscious decision, I am now going to close that chapter and I'm now going to start a new one, or was it just that circumstantial because you ended up writing all of these amazingly successful books? Well, it was a sort of decision. Um, in fact, it was um, slightly premature and I always always feel a bit guilty about this because I had I had written two books that were going to be part of a trilogy, um, Galaxarina and Terra Farmer, and I never wrote the third one. I started trying to write it, but I'd already got into my other persona by then, and I was so in love with the Japanese world that I found I couldn't go back to this other world. So I still you know, get letters from readers saying, whatever happened to Universicus, which was uh, the third book. And I have to say, I'm really sorry, I just could not write it. <laughs> okay, so um, you have sold millions of copies and your books have been translated into 42 languages. Did you ever anticipate that that was going to happen? Not at all. It was it was um, really a complete surprise to me. And um, I remember that my agent took the books to the Frankfurt Book Fair and she kept emailing me and telling me about the amazing auctions that were going on with all of the different countries. And I was completely mind blown by it all. It, it just didn't seem to be the sort of thing that would ever happen to me. Um, mm. But I think what happened was that in the years that I'd been sort of plodding away, being really interested in Japan and doing my research and um, studying Japanese, during that time, a lot of people had also become very interested in Japan and it just sort of came out at the right time and there was a great thirst for that sort of material. And so you've mentioned that about this, this you know, ancient custom of uh, requiring that either certain people or children commit suicide or are killed. What specifically gave you the idea for this book? Like, though, like what made you think, I'm going to write a book about that and this is going to happen? A lot of people have been asking me what happened at the end of The Harsh Cry of the Heron, which is quite a dark book, um, you know, quite tragic at the end. And I started to think maybe I would write about some of the surviving characters. And I'd had um, a lot of difficulty getting into the voice of the story. I've made two or three, you know, false starts of several tens of thousands of words, and I was feeling a bit frustrated by this. And then I suddenly decided um, that I was going to write from the point of view of the boy, partly because I think at the moment 
boys are struggling so much to know how to grow up in our world, which is so full of men um, who are not all that good role models and who are also leading, you know, most of the countries of the world. And I started to think what it would be like to be the son of one of those world leaders and how they would feel. And so in a way, I was writing a book, these books, for that sort of person. And so I settled on the child main character, which is interesting because even though it's it's an adult book, really, the main character is a child and we see everything through his uh, point of view. It's a, it's a closed third-person voice. And once I got that, it was as if the the two books wrote themselves. That was just exactly how I was meant to write these two books. That's pretty magical feeling. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> so give us a little bit more of an idea. So you, 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 the first draft's by hand. Your second draft is kind of like when you're typing it in and no doubt you fix things here and there or change things here and there in your second draft. What happens after that? Can you just take us through the rest of your writing process you know, do they come out fairly well-formed well and fully formed or is there a lot of going back because you forgot bits or got things in the wrong order? Do you restructure? Describe typically the rest of your writing process for a book for us. Well, once I have that that second draft on the computer, um, I just keep reading through it and reworking it and you know, changing bits here and there. But usually it's pretty pretty okay structurally at that mm. stage. I think because I use my my charts and my maps and my timelines and everything, so I've got a very good sense of the bones of the book. Mm. Um, and I read it through endless times, you know, and add bits here and then take things away and so on. And probably I've, I'll have done that four or five times and then I send it to my agent and she then reads it and gives her opinion um, and then it goes out to publishers. What That's did the you, process. <laughs> what did you find the most challenging thing or the hardest thing or about, um, uh, about writing these? They've all been not exactly difficult to write. I've found them fairly easy to write. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because once I, get, yeah, once I get into that trance frame of mind, you know, I just let the story happen. And I've got such a clear idea of the characters and of their relationships to each other. But I have to confess one thing to you, which is I absolutely hate being edited. So oh. for me, editing is an extremely difficult and fraught stage of of the writing process. Is it because you think that the editor is wrong or because you just hate changing things? Or why do you hate it? It's a sort of mixture of both of them. I think because I've been through my process for so, for so long mm. and I know my world so well that I find it hard to believe anyone else knows better than me on it. <laughs> so I'm interested I mean, in... <laughs> I'm not no. saying that, that I don't listen to editors. I do, and I yes. often change things according to their suggestions, but it's a very painful process for me. <laughs> so I'm interested in the trance-like state. What do you... You say you're right, you know, typically in the mornings. What do you... Um, 
do? Do you have any rituals or do you have to get into the translate state in an, in any way? Just take us through kind of like um, almost like a step-by-step what happens when you start writing to get yourself into the groove. I get up very early in the morning, often like a, while like it's still dark, maybe okay. 5 o'clock okay. or, mm-hmm. yeah. And then um, I used to make a cup of green tea and mm-hmm. go and sit at my desk with my pen and my notebooks and just start writing. And I find that writing at that time of day when it's really quiet and nobody else is up mm-hmm. is fantastic for silencing inner critics, you know, and that voice in your head that says, oh, you shouldn't be doing this, you should be doing something else, this is no good, you know. And so I I just write completely freely. And so can you write elsewhere or do you, like, can you go to a cafe and does it work for you there or do you have to be in your space? I prefer to be in my space, but I I have done quite a lot of writing on the road in – you know, on planes, for instance, and um, in airport lounges and in different places. Um, in When I was writing Grass for His Pillow, which is the second book in the trilogy, I had a spell of um, being writer in residence at an Indonesian school, and I did quite a lot of writing there, which was wonderful. And I, you know, carry my books with me often so that I can write on the road, but... My preferred place is at home at my desk. So the scary thing is if you handwrite them into those spiral-bound notebooks and you are out on the road, have you ever lost a notebook? No, I've never lost one. I've <laughs> always always been absolutely terrified that I might. And, in fact, when I had finished um, Heaven's Net is Wide and The Harsh Cry of the Heron, which are both pretty big books and I think they went to five notebooks each and I was uh, telling my friends about this and they go oh you might you absolutely have to photocopy them you can't just keep them in notebooks so I took them down to the local office shop and you know solemnly had them photocopied in case the house burnt down or I don't know somebody stole them or something but normally I just hope that I don't lose them I mean yeah that would be horrendous okay so um now what are you working on in terms of writing, do you have your next book in your brain or coming out or half out already? No, I've actually decided to retire from writing novels because I've Your been... fans are going to be in uproar. <laughs> Seriously. Well, I have broken the news to them, but <laughs> yes. I, um, I think probably nine books in this world is enough. And even though, I mean, I could go on and on, and because two of the books are set much earlier, like, 300 years earlier, that's the tale of Chikanoko. I could always fill in the years in between too, you know, with what was mm. happening to, to everybody all through that time. But I've decided that um, I really do want to stop now. I'm 77 years old. I'll be 78 this year. And even though I'm, you know, very lucky, I'm in really good health and everything, but I can feel that I don't have the energy to write a novel anymore because it does take a huge amount of energy. It's a lot of work and a lot of, you know, concentration and dedication. Yes. Will you not miss that trance-like state? I think I will, but, you know, 
I've had a lot of ideas for poems, so I'm mm. uh, keeping track of all of them in a in a notebook, and I'll probably just work on doing short poetry. Mm. What a great idea! And um, what was the apart from the trance-like flow that seems to come to you so naturally? What do you find has been the most rewarding thing about writing these books? I think that the relationship I have with my readers has been really fantastic. So um, people have been loving these books for almost 20 years now. And early on, the American publishers had a forum for the books, which we later took over to my website. And that was wonderful. You know, kids from all over the world were coming onto the forum and talking about the books and uh, talking about their lives and everything. And I did a book signing at Abby's Bookshop in Sydney Mm. the week before last. And some of those people who are now almost 40, you know, Mm. sent orders to have books sent to them in England and the States and other countries so that I would sign them for them. And um, I recognize their names. I feel as if Mm. I know them. So that sense of a readership out there has has been really fantastic. Did you know as you were writing these that this this was the last novels that you wanted to write? Or did you decide that later? Yeah. Um, I had a feeling that they might be, yes. So did you grieve the end of it? A bit, but I also this the second one Sibling Assassins, I like as much as anything I've written. So I was really quite happy to feel that I could finish on a high, on a book mm. that I that I was really satisfied with. Mm. Um, but, you know, never say never because you might have been Gillian Rubenstein before and Lee and her now. Who knows? Maybe a new poet is going to emerge under another name, right? Maybe, yes. I'd have to think <laughs> of another pseudonym. <laughs> Right, so what's your, I mean, what an incredible career and what incredible success. Um, uh, what's, what would your top three tips be for aspiring writers who hope to be have a career like you one day? Well, I think the first thing is don't worry if you can't get a long period of time because you can write a novel at 500 words a day and anyone can manage that. If you do 500 words a day over a year, you know you have quite a sizable piece of work. And the second thing is to read a lot because um, that's how we learn to write is through reading. And I guess the third thing is not to get discouraged, you know, find some good writer friends and be very clear-sighted about, um, you know, it's hard now to make a career as a writer. In in a way, I was lucky. I, I think it was a sort of golden age when I started writing and then when the Otori books came out. But I think things have changed a lot. It's so much harder now, you know, to have your first book published and for that to make a splash and then to have your second book published and so on. So, yes, that's my third piece Mm. of advice. Don't get discouraged. That's great advice and you're certainly incredibly inspirational. So congratulations on all of your words and on having such a wonderfully successful and inspiring career. Thank you so much for your time today, Leanne. Well, thank you very much. It's been really lovely talking to you. 
This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you'd like to write fiction for kids and teens, our five-week online course, How to Write for Children and Young Adults, will help you get there faster. Find your voice, create characters, dialogue and plots to fit your age group and write compelling stories that young readers will love, all in a couple of hours a week. You'll also enjoy the convenience of learning from anywhere and get your very own tutor providing personal feedback on your writing. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash children's author. There you go, Leon Hearn. Okay, let's just put this out here. I mean, out of all of the amazingness that we've just heard and discussed, mm-hmm. she writes it all by hand. I know. I'm I just mean, astonished by I'm that. Astonished too. I, That's you. so many words. Like really? you know, as we've it's discussed, crazy. I can't write a shopping list that I can actually read, oh, let alone however many hundreds of thousands and thousands of words mm. that she I, has written. And honestly, I would just be paranoid that you know. I'd lose the notebook or I'd it'd, oh, you know, well, that's go a whole into nother. the newspaper pile. You know how that's like, a whole nother thing. Yeah, I know. One of my boys pile. would probably take it to school, you know, yeah. <laughs> put, their, put their art project in it. <laughs> oh, All right. Anyway. What are you doing in the coming week, Al? Well, I'm well and truly knee-deep involved in putting together my event my seminar yes, so for, oh yes everyone yes. needs to go to Al, to the event yes yes which we should have talked talk about, about earlier that. really but mm. okay um yeah so i'm uh, i've got my 2 hour workshop uh which is going to be in Nowra on the 7th of march we will put a link in the show notes yes. and you know i'm talking so it's just apart from me you know which mm. is whatever you guys have heard me but i'm talking at length about you know experiences and all of the various things how to get published how to find an agent, how to do all the things that, you know, one needs to do to be a writer. But I'm also talking to, and this is really exciting. So I've got two special guests. One of them is Pamela Cook, who we have interviewed on the podcast, um, you know, commercial uh, fiction yes. author, bestseller, uh, also has experience with indie publishing. So we're going to be talking about the various aspects of those things. And then I'm also talking to Mark Whitaker, who is a local investigative journalist. He's a Walkley Award winner, but he's also a podcaster and he has a true crime um, podcast mm-hmm. out with Audible at the moment, which is about um, a true crime that occurred in the Northern Territory. It's called Blood Territory. Um, mm-hmm. So we're going to be talking about his career, how he you know, got, got into this, the narrative of podcasting. Like it's going to be a really – I'm quite excited about the fact that I'll be talking to these guests because, you know, I like to find out things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm quite keen to find out exactly how Mark got to where he is um, and and share that information with everyone else who's going to be there. So, yeah, I really hope that you guys will come along and join me. Um, I would love to see you there. I would love for you to hear what my special guests have to say as well. Um, and, yeah, I'm, so I'm currently wrestling with a PowerPoint presentation to make sure that that <laughs> looks amazing. It's just like, oh, fun, t- fun times for AL. I'll um, help you with your PowerPoint. I know you will. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm relying on that. <laughs> I haven't told you that yet but I'm relying on that um so that's what I'm doing at the moment um what about you Valerie what are you up to date of the event on the 7th of March okay and where will it be it will be in Nowra at the Nowra Anglican College and it starts at 10.30 in the morning. And you know what? If you live in Sydney or mm. anywhere in the near areas, mm. come come down for it. Bring yeah. your esky. We are 
bushfire or, revitalization or you don't territory. Have to bring your esky. There are shops there. No, there. No, but no. No, that's the thing. Did you, did you have you not heard about that? The bring your what? esky campaign. Oh, bring no? your esky down and support the local businesses down here. All of our local producers and stuff who've been oh, impacted by yes. the bushfires. So come down, yes. stay a night, bring your esky. Like you know, this is a thing. Come and see me. Got it. Yep. Yeah. Fantastic. We'll put the link in the show notes. All right. Where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. And, of course, you'll find all of the show notes at SoYouWantToBeAWriter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.